good evening, everyone. Uh, thank you for coming, and thank you very much, um, James Watts, the, the uh, chairman for the British Council in the Levant, for that very generous in introduction. Um, I hope I can live up to that. Um, and um, I, <coughs> I would also like to say that uh, there are some of my paintings at the back there, and they... and. Um, um, we're trying to raise funds for travel grants um, for research in the Levant. Now, if there are any paintings that take your fancy, I'm willing to give a percentage to that uh, travel grant for post-doctorate students who want to go to the Levant. Um, but, yeah, we can talk about that later. Um, now, I'd, I'd also like to thank... Um, historians and writers who have helped me with this research. Um, Max Egremont, who wrote the biography of Spears, is here with us tonight. Um, also, uh, Philip Mansell, James Barr, um, the uh, biographer of Spears's uh, remarkable wife, uh, uh, Mary Borden. Uh, Jane Conway is here tonight, which is, which is great. Um, and also uh, Lebanese historians, uh, sadly not with us uh, here tonight, Yusuf Mawad, uh, Dr. Khaled Shparo, um, Salem Oseiran, um, and the late uh, Abbas Abu Saleh, uh, who have helped me a lot, and the late Patrick Seeley. Um, and we're also honoured this evening, I think, to have uh, a relation of the Aylmer family who... Uh, uh, I'm not quite sure, but um, uh, related to uh, Spears' godson and, and uh, very close to the Spears family and uh, Mary Borden's um, descendants. Now, some of you may know me as an artist and not as a professional historian. However, today I will try my best to be the latter. Um, I will be exploring a little-known shared history of Lebanon and Britain, uh, how we perceive that history and what it means to us now. Now, this touches me personally um, because I love both places uh, and am interested in an episode which bridges two seemingly disconnected places. Now, <laughs> I think we probably all know that Britain has an extremely bad and damaging history in the Middle East, um, but the following episode may provide one rare positive moment when we actually did something good. Um, now, the subject of, of, of tonight, uh, Edward Louis Spears, was born in France in August 1886. His English mother, Millicent Hack, seen here holding uh, baby Louis Spears, um, suffered from severe mental illness, and this surely affected his troubled relationships with women throughout his life. Um, I, now, after his mother was put in a mental asylum and lately completely abandoned him, he was brought up by his grandmother, Lucy Hack, in Ireland, and notably also in France, in Provence, Burgundy, and Brittany. 
He grew up speaking perfect French. And in 1906, he became a young officer in the British Army for the 11th Royal Irish Hussars. Now, he became a liaison officer between Britain and France in the First World War, a role he really invented for himself, acting heroically and challenging leadership, which he felt was often incompetent and terribly wasteful. His childhood and early career set him on a path which was to dominate his life, the struggle between Britain and France, both important parts of himself. He loved both countries, but never truly belonged to either. Now, why was Spears in Lebanon? In the beginning, it had nothing to do with any affection for the Lebanese. As ever, Lebanon was the unfortunate arena for other people's wars. In 1940, France had surrendered to Nazi Germany, and Marshal Pétain signed an armistice treaty with Hitler. The Nazi collaborators formed a government at Vichy, and as such, France's colonies, of which Lebanon and Syria were part, were now loyal to the Vichy and, by extension, the Nazi regimes. The Luftwaffe, the German Air Force, began using Lebanon as a place to land their planes and support Rashid Ali's insurgency in Iraq against the British, which, if successful, would threaten the whole of the Middle East and North Africa and Eastern Mediterranean campaigns because of one thing, that infamous natural resource, oil. Well, some things haven't changed. Spears wrote, apart from Britain itself, the the Levant seemed to me to be the most important theatre in the world. We drew essential oil from Iraq and Persia. The pipeline to Haifa was of the greatest importance. But if the Germans were to gain control of the Levant states, we would have inevitably lost the Suez Canal and Egypt which was within one hour's flight of the Lebanese and Syrian landing grounds. This would mean the loss of the whole Mediterranean. Excuse me. So, so Spears led a campaign with this gentleman, um, Charles de Gaulle. And here they are, uh, a picture dining together at the Ritz, just up the road from where we are today. And Spears had brought de Gaulle personally to London in his plane from Bordeaux uh, as the Germans closed in and persuaded the British to support this relatively unknown Frenchman. And he convinced Churchill and the British military command that the Allies must take Lebanon and Syria back from the Vichy and Nazi control. Eventually, the invasion, called Operation Exporter, happened in 1941. And after a vicious and absurd short war, which really amounted to a French civil war in the Levant, 
the British and the free French took control of Lebanon and Syria. It infuriated Spears that the French fought more bravely against their own countrymen in Lebanon than they had fought against the Nazis in France. Importantly, the free French promised independence to Lebanon and Syria, and this promise was guaranteed by Britain. Displaying a distinctly colonial attitude to establishing uh, influence in the region, particularly as the British were unpopular in Palestine for obvious reasons, Spears wrote, How do we secure the goodwill of the people? It seemed to me that the most obvious as well as the simplest way to do this, is to promise them independence in a manner that would carry conviction so that they would forget how often it had been promised before but always withheld. But whatever the reasons for independence were, in Spears' mind at least, a British promise meant something. He actually called... Uh, uh, British broken promises to the Arabs, uh, immoral and nasty. Spears was appointed head of the so-called Spears mission to liaise between the free French and Lebanese and Syrian puppet governments and later became the newly created British minister for the Levant. He took residence in this house, in Zarif, in Beirut. And became, this became the British ambassador's residence from 1941 to 1982 and is now an administration centre for a social welfare institution, Dar al al-Islami. And Spears was accompanied by his wife, Lady Spears, now, she is a remarkable person in her own right, um, Mary May Borden, a prolific American novelist and pioneering nurse who had set up field hospitals for the French troops on the Western Front, as you see here, um, interestingly wearing stilettos. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know what she did those for at the Battle of the Somme, I'm not sure. Uh, and, and she then set up um, hospitals for free French troops uh, in North Africa and Syria during World War II. Here she is on the left with our friend Charles de Gaulle, who we're going to hear about quite a lot more later. Um, earlier in, in her life, she had campaigned for the suffragette movement, and actually had spent a week in Bow Street Prison for throwing stones at the Treasury Department windows. Now, I will draw on her memoirs titled Journey Down a Blind Alley, which were published just a year after the war ended. As she had no political ambition, she perhaps recorded events a little less egotistically than her husband. And here she is, again, uh, in her role as society hostess and successful novelist. Now, she, she loved Lebanon. 
In her memoirs, she wrote about her compulsion to paint there. I was in love with the land and the sky. I was in love with the wonderful, soft, full light that poured down round me and through me and seemed to fill not only my eyes with beauty, but my body with an essence that was life-giving and had something to do with the source of pure happiness. It wasn't just the landscape which captured her heart. She wrote about the Lebanese, These people are people are so much more like us than anyone in England imagines. Their Arabic names make them seem strange to those who don't know them. Now I feel that I do know many of them, and I find they have the same emotional reactions, the same ideas about decency that I have. They are gay, spontaneous, sensitive, and quick, where the British are solemn, phlegmatic, and have the sense, their sensibility under such control that they are about as vibrant as blocks of wood. <laughs> now, after the Allied invasion of Lebanon, the Spears took this house as their residence in Beirut, and here it is on the left, just after they left in the 1960s, and here it is last year uh, during my exhibition um, in the same hallway. Now, <clears throat> since their time, it's, and, and since the British left, it has been a centre for Dada Laitem, um, firstly as an orphanage uh, during the Civil War in Lebanon, and then as an admin centre. Now, I actually approached Dada Laitam in 2016 with an, with an idea to do an exhibition there. I was given a lovely studio in the building. Uh, and here I am at work in what was probably uh, the Spears' bedroom because it has the best al uh, balcony in, in the house and has the best uh, ensuite bathroom uh, with many of its uh, original features. So, you know, in a way, working in that very place uh, was so evocative and so inspiring that I felt I had to find out who these remarkable people were. You know, what happened in this, this very building? Now, um, I painted and taught children from the orphanage there for six months uh, from 2016 to 17, and studied books about the most famous former residents. Um, and it was an incredibly inspiring experience. And from the history that I discovered, I thought, really, I have to paint um, some portraits about this remarkable story that almost no one seems to know. So this is an uh, installation of portraits of some of the most... Um, notable former residents and people who've lived and visited the building over the years. Um, and however, um, shortly before the exhibition opened, the portraits were removed by order of the director of the institution because the history was deemed as being too political and potentially controversial. 
I was told that the paintings may inflame French opinion on a diplomatic level. Anger pro-French Christian politicians, still in power to this day, and possibly attracts bad attention from more extreme Islamist and Syrian nationalist elements. Now this shows that the history is still alive. This is, is something that's very much with us now. And uh, it's for the director to decide what is best. Um, but um, I believe um, that people do deserve to know their history and be able to identify it with the place in which it happened. This is what really brings the history alive for people, particularly for children. And this is particularly relevant in Lebanon where history is disputed and many of the places where important events happened are being demolished. This disrupts the development of a strong identity. An understanding of the remarkable story of how and where the modern country of Lebanon was born, however contentious and messy it was, I believe could help develop a stronger identity and a greater sense of self. Now, back to our friend Spears. Once he had settled in Beirut, Spears describes his first meeting with the French commander in the Levant, George Catru, and the British commander, uh, Jumbo Wilson, at the Sofar Grand Hotel. Um, now, here's another painting from the house. And here is the Sofar Grand Hotel, which sadly is in a ruinous state. It's actually the site of my current projects to transform it into uh, an arts and music venue later this year. Um, but this is where they had their first meeting. And Spears writes, The meeting between Wilson Catru and myself took place in the hotel garden. The, the atmosphere was somewhat strained. And I think this photograph tells you what that meeting must have been like. Um, and it wasn't just the French command which was the target of his wrath. Showing his barely disguised contempt for the British commander, Jumbo Wilson, uh, Spears writes, and here is Wilson, um, he was an enormous bald man, active for his size, unexpectedly so, like an outsized child's balloon rising into space at the lightest touch. <laughs> he, he had the good fortune to, to resemble a benevolent owl. Feathers alone were missing. But, but his physical characteristics were not a reliable guide to his character, and I personally never located the benevolence his wide paunch seemed to proclaim. In fact, the British Foreign Office were regular targets of Spears's, uh, I think, sardonic venom. Um, now, over the next three years, Spears's view of the French began to change as he witnessed their dictatorial and exploitative measures against the Lebanese. His main aim became the thwarting of French power in the Levant and support for the nascent Lebanese and Syrian independence movements. Now, 
Now, Spears was also quite a good artist, uh, and here is his caricature sketch of de Gaulle, um, which um, shows that he, he uh, well, says a lot about what he thought of de Gaulle. Um, now, de Gaulle, painted here by me, um, his main aim was to restore the greatness of France and seemed to have no intention whatsoever of granting independence to Lebanon. This set him on a collision course with Spears. De Gaulle said to Foreign Office <coughs> official Robin Hutchins, it is we French who have given them their freedom, and it is for us alone to judge when they are fit to receive it. In no uncertain terms, de Gaulle wrote to General Catru on the 1st of May 1942. He said, you do not take any orders from a foreign general in any matter whatsoever. We all know what general he meant there. In any case, persevere in your task of eliminating all British influence. It must have been hard for de Gaulle to give these orders, knowing that the existence of the Free French Movement, at least at that time, depended entirely on British support. De Gaulle continues, Spears sees the establishment of a democratic parliamentary regime in Lebanon as a weapon with which to dispossess us. Now, how, how interesting that the establishment of a liberal democracy in the Middle East was, was seen then as a destructive weapon. Spears was appalled by this attitude. He knew that it was mainly British and Australian soldiers who had defeated Vichy forces in 1941. He was also outraged that de Gaulle had kept many Vichy staff in control of Lebanon. Whilst his view of the French was deteriorating, what did he think of the Lebanese? Well, to begin with, he was, he was equally as scathing. In 1942, in a letter to the Foreign Office, he describes the pliant French stooge, um, President Naash, uh, pictured here with Spears. There's Naash in the middle. Um, and his so-called government. Spears writes, The two native governments are hopelessly inefficient, especially the Lebanese. I have, I have often likened people to chewed string in my time, but I never met an individual characteristic of that article until I met President Naash. <laughs> but later, he was full of admiration and idealization, a sort of romantic fascination. Something had changed. He wrote... The French could never have understood, still less accepted, that the Lebanese sprang from a far older and higher civilization than their own. He regarded them as shrewd, and I quote, very clever people. This ad adulatory praise for one people, the Lebanese, could also turn the other way, as he showed um, really very racist attitudes towards Jews and Ghanaians later on in his life, which, despite being typical of the time, are nonetheless shocking. So, so what went on at the House? Well, there were political meetings, uh, and here he is on the front steps of the House in 1942, 
uh, with his wife Mary Borden there in, in the middle. And the British minister for the whole Middle East, uh, uh, Dick Casey, on, on the right there. And here I am with Max Egremont, uh, the biographer of Spears, in exactly the same place last year during my exhibition. Now, um, in, in uh, wait, and here he is uh, in the house in the main hallway where my exhibition was, um, was held. Now, from here and in his office nearby, Spears orchestrated the fair distribution of wheat amongst rural areas to avoid the appalling famine that the Allies had caused in World War I and also strangle attempts by rich landowners to push up the cost of wheat by hoarding supplies. So what Spears was doing was actually really working hard for the common man, you know, the ordinary Lebanese villager. He also revitalized the Lebanese silk industry, reopening several deteriorating factories to make silk parachutes that were used um, in the D-Day landings for Allied armies. Now, have you ever wondered where that silk came from? Well, it was from Lebanon. Basically, he wanted to win the war, and he pursued any positive policy to this end. But even in 1942, he was worried and felt isolated. The American ambassador to Britain had called for his dismissal for fears he was supporting a local insurgent movement. In, in June 1942, the Foreign Secretary, Sir Anthony Eden, wrote to Churchill saying that Spears, I quote, does not possess the right temperament for what is primarily a diplomatic post. Now, we all saw, uh, uh, well, we didn't see, but uh, Eden's handling of uh, diplomatic hand handling of the Middle East was exposed rather badly in the Suez Crisis um, soon after that. Now, Spears was aware of his vulnerable position. He wrote to Harold uh, Katia on the 8th of July 1942, the one thing that really puzzles me is London, and I have a horrid feeling that the strong attitude which was our characteristic which was the characteristic of our policy towards the Free French and the Levant, has been somewhat modified. I should very much like to be reassured on this point, as nothing is more difficult and discouraging than the feeling one may not be enjoying the full backing of London. In another letter, Sir Arthur Cadogan wrote about Spears. He is essentially an Araviste, his primary object is to carve out a position for himself. This allusion to his vanity is backed up by several sources. Another secret telegram states that most of Spears' staff regarded him as, I quote, an ambitious and unscrupulous self-seeker. But Spears still held the trump card of his old friend Churchill's support. Now, 
at the National Archives, I found this letter uh, written by uh, Churchill. And in it, he, uh, you can see that uh, he, is, he supports um, his old mate Spears, saying, Spears is very capable of standing up to French pretensions. And he also regularly told Spears' enemies, Louis Spears has a great many enemies, but he has one friend. Now, something which is clear from these plots to undermine Spears is that no one was considering the best interest of the Lebanese, apart from, it could be argued, Spears. His wife, Mary Borden, also did a lot to help the rural Lebanese and Syrians, setting up medical clinics to help the poor and the diseased. She wrote, Syria and the Lebanon are dear to me. The people have become my friends, and there is more beauty in their country than in any other I have known. One wonders how they must have discussed their work in the house in Beirut to help the local people. Now, I recently met his private secretary, May Arida, who was 18 years old at the time, and she went on to be one of Lebanon's uh, most famous and greatest beauties, as you see here. Um, and she vouches for the man that she remembers as Très Chamon. She went on to become the famous president of the Baalbek Festival, um, world water skiing champion, and also competed at the Winter Olympics, um, and was friend of most European um, royalty. Spears had a colourful private life. Now, here he is in the garden in Beirut where I painted, um, and here he is with some foreign office of officials, and his mistress, uh, the blonde lady there, uh, Nancy Morris, who became his second wife later in life. There is much evidence in his wife's memoirs about how much this menage a trois upsets her. Now, another woman who won Spears' affections was this lady, um, the well-known socialite beauty Maud Farjalla. In Samir Asir's seminal book, Beirut, he describes Maud Farjalla as Spears' muse. In her memoirs, Visage d'une Epoque, she describes how Spears personally overturned the planned British occupation of her friend George Sider's mansion in Raspe Root after she complained to him. Then she dined with him at Le Bain Militaire in Manara and then at his residence in Zarif. She was given a guard of honor as she entered the house. Now, whatever their relationship was, it is clear that he had a great affection for her. Um, now, another woman who won his affections was the singer Asmahan. Spears was passionate about her. He wrote about this in his memoirs. She was and will always be to me one of the most beautiful women I have ever seen. 
Her eyes were immense, green as the color of the sea. You have to cross on the way to paradise. <laughs> there are several references in Lady Spears' memoirs to dinners and cocktail parties at Aspahan's house. The singer also visited the British residence. Spears describes one notable incident. One night, I was dining alone at the residence when the Arab butler informed me that the Emir Atrash, Asmahan's husband, wanted to see me urgently. Half an hour later, he appeared at the residence. I asked my butler to what I owed the honor of this urgent call. He then explained that his wife had telephoned asking for his immediate presence at the embassy. So that was it. She required the absence of her husband for reasons best known to herself, with the consequence that both he and I had been fooled into providing her with, with time of which she no doubt made good use. <laughs> now, now, there is a lot of um, evidence to suggest that she was um, working for British intelligence. Um, but also may have been working for the other side too. Now, whatever happens between Asmahan and Spears, we shall probably never know. But when she died in mysterious cir circumstances near Cairo in 1944, whilst shooting uh, this film, um, which is called Gharam uh, u Inti Am, um, which means love and vengeance. Um, Spears was overcome with grief and went to the place where she was killed to lay flowers. Now, back to um, the political uh, affairs of Lebanon. Um, at Spears' insistence, free elections were held in September 1943. Remember, this was a key moment in the war when the British really need the, needed the Levantine Arabs on their side because there was still a great fear that uh, potentially uh, the um, Arab population, particularly the Muslim population, might um, go to the, to the German side. And Spears was determined to bring about the independence that Britain had promised Lebanon. Now, the British-backed constitutional bloc um, defeated the French-backed national bloc, and the new Lebanese government, with its uh, president Bashar al-Khuri and Prime Minister Riyad al-Sulah, pictured here in a portrait, which is actually at the end of the room, the real thing, um, the Lebanese then demanded full independence from France, and with Spears' backing, refused to attend the Armistice Day Parade. After Helu, the new French minister, uh, because Catru had been replaced, um, and uh, basically Heller had discovered that Lebanese um, deputies had not been invited to the Armistice Day um, parade. Rather, the Lebanese had discovered that. So El Solah and El Khouri, um, Spears' um, allies, Lebanese allies, um, refused to attend the French parade. 
Now, Spears had found genuine voices for independence in El Salah and El Khuri. The Lebanese independence movement wasn't new. In fact, Arab nationalism um, actually had, it, had its roots amongst Lebanese Christians um, who desired to be free from Ottoman Muslim power in the 19th century. And one of the most famous landmarks in modern-day Beirut is the Martyrs Monument, um, a sculpture honoring Lebanese nationalists hung by the Ottomans in 1916 after they found a list of Lebanese nationalists carelessly discarded by none other than George Pico of the Sykes-Pico map. Um, now, El Solah, the son of a Lebanese Sunni Muslim Ottoman civil servant, had been inspired by the notable Algerian freedom fighter Abdel Khader and his own experience of being put on trial by the Ottomans. He had become a Lebanese nationalist after he abandoned the idea of a a wider Syrian unity. El Solah campaigned for Arab independence for many years and had been imprisoned by the French for his support for workers' rights. The French mandate government also sequestered his dear old childhood um, home on Beirut seafront, and then they sold it. The house was then demolished and replaced by apartment blocks. It broke his heart. Now, El Sulah had had meetings with German agents, but he soon realized that he could better use the British as an ally against the French colonial rule. In Spears, El Sulah recognized a perfect partner. He, like other smart Lebanese politicians, knew that Spears was a vain man and cleverly exploited this. When El Sulah was elected as prime minister, Spears wrote to Harold Macmillan, he is undoubtedly the best man amongst a very limited number of Sunni Muslims available. Spears knew he had to appeal to the Muslim community as a way to create a fairer, more equal Lebanon, which was not completely dominated by Christians. He knew that Lebanon would never work otherwise. Now, I've just um, discovered this photograph, which was sent to me uh, by the grandson of, of uh, Adil Osseidan, who was a leading Shiite notable, who Spears made very good friends with. In fact, um, there is Spears um, sporting a, a, a wonderful pair of shorts, um, which I, I, I gather was de rigueur amongst the British at the time. And um, here he is... Um, with the Muslim, Shiite Muslim community. Now, it's, it's very unlikely that you would f- find any member of the French um, colonial um, powers doing that. And this is Spears's, I think, remarkable um, achievement, was to make friends with not only the Christians, but the Muslims too, and to see that actually, um, you know, Lebanon is, is a unique and remarkable place but its, its success hinges really on the ability of those two communities to work together. Uh, and as we know, that still hasn't completely happened. But, you know, I think it, it really is worth revisiting 
the vision that Spears had about coexistence. Now, um, I, I have just come back from Lebanon where I had dinner with uh, Ali Oseran in the pale jacket just to the left of Spears there. Uh, I had uh, dinner in his house um, and they told me this story. Now, um, a criticism often leveled at colonial powers is that they created weak states in order to, to continue dominating them. Now, this may be true in many cases, but from what I've discovered about Spears and his Lebanese allies, they were truly trying to create as fair a system as they could. al Sulah, in turn, knew how to keep Spears on his side and met with Spears and his political officer, Furlong, every day. He wrote a note to Spears, expecting to be backed up in a dispute with the French. El Sola writes, In carrying out the task I have undertaken, I am counting on the support of all the friends of Lebanon, of whom you are the very first. El Sola and Bashar al-Khuri had formed a unique partnership of Christian and Muslim um, forces known as the National Pact. Now, religious division had been enshrined in Lebanese politics, after a sectarian quota system was established in 1861 by, yep, you've guessed it, Britain, France, uh, and also Russia and the Ottomans, after uh, Christian and Druze massacres on Mount Lebanon. Now, El Salah and Oseiran ultimately wanted to transcend and abolish the confessional system whereby people's identities and politics are defined by their religion. But to begin with, they knew they had to play the game in order to get into power. So a government was formed, which al Sola felt was as fair as possible. Importantly, shortly before the elections, de Gaulle had replaced General Catru, with whom Spears had developed an uneasy yet working relationship, with Jean Heller. Now, Jean Heller was the Vichy, the former Vichy ambassador to Turkey. Mary Borden describes this change as a calamity. Heller had no grasp of the local situation. Spears describes him, I quote, as very undistinguished and a typical alcoholic. He... <laughs> He made me think of an anteater because of his long nose, which, which, unlike that of the animal, was red at the tip but seemed forever to be sniffing for something. <laughs> now, on the 10th of November, there was a dinner at the Spears residence. This is 1943. And the dinner was to host King Peter of Yugoslavia um, and Jean Heller. Spears writes, I I told Heller that I would like to have a word with him. And here is um, the house again where they were having dinner. The house was not very convenient for occasions such as this, Spears writes, with a large barely furnished hall on the first floor onto which gave two rather small drawing rooms. Not very elegant, but I took 
Hella aside into the right-hand room, which we called the green room. Uh, and there it is on the right there. Now, would Heller give him his word that there would be no precipitate French intervention in the recent formation of the Lebanese government? The delegate quickly assented. Je vous donne ma parole d'honneur. I give you my word of honour. Afterwards, May saw her husband's obvious relief. It did not last long. In the early hours of the morning of the 11th of November, 1943, Spears awoke to find the eldest son of President El Khoury in his bedroom. His face was covered in blood, and the boy said that soldiers had entered his parents' room where his mother was ill in bed and dragged his father off, also beating the boy with the butts of their rifles, shouting, son of a dog, son of an Englishman, the president had called out to him as he was carried off, go to General Spears and tell him. The French had arrested most of the Lebanese cabinet and imprisoned them in Rashaya Castle in the eastern Bekar Valley. Now here is a photograph and here is my painting of the same view. And that painting, incidentally, is at the end of the room here. Um, now, three ministers had managed to escape and set up a temporary de facto independent government in Bashamun. And here they are um, with a local um, sort of tribal fighters who, 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 who uh, I, I gather, found the whole thing very exciting. Um, and... Um, were you know, very passionate to defend their, their, their country's uh, so-called independence. Um, and these, these ministers were, were, were assisted by these armed locals and a number of quite glamorous ladies. Um, <laughs> uh, one of them is here, in fact. Um, it is May Arida's mother uh, in the white, um, on the right there. Now, Spears writes from his residence, It was now nearly seven o'clock in the morning, and I telephoned Casey in Cairo and told him what had occurred. He just could not believe that the French had been so insane, and we both agreed that we must react immediately. As we spoke on the phone, Hiller's voice came on the radio, declaring that he had suspended the Constitution, dismissed the government, and appointed Emil Edde head of a new government. Later that day, Spears invited Lor El Khouri, who is the wife of the um, Lebanese president who had just been imprisoned. And Spears invited her to come and stay in the residence um, where he could give her protection. Spears writes, My wife, Mary Borden, visited. Madame Khoury, the wife of the president, that afternoon and found her terrified. Black Senegalese troops had previously killed several people outside the house who had formed part of a peaceful delegation. The long flight of steps outside the president's residence were running with blood when my wife arrived. Madame El Khoury implored to be given a British guard. 
But as this was impossible, I offered her and her children the hospitality of my house. So, um, Laura El-Khuri and her children actually came to the British residence to stay. And very few Lebanese people know that. Now, Lady Spears describes how the house was like a railway station, the center of activity um, and meetings about independence and what to do with the French attempted coup. Deputations poured in, among them the Maronite Archbishop of Beirut, the Muslim Grand Mufti, and a certain Madame Zalfa Shamoun, the wife of one of the Lebanese ministers, um, pro-British ministers, locked up in, in prison. Spears describes her entrance to the residence that day. In tripped Madame Chamon, fair as a ripe wheat field in sunshine, her immense blue eyes ablaze, whose husband, the pro-British Camille Chamon, had also been seized. The next day, both Spears and his wife were particularly inspired by a massive women's march, led by Zalfa Chamon, in this portrait, of Christian and Muslim women, which took place on the streets of Beirut on the 12th of November, just down the hill from the house. Now, Spears writes about the Muslim uh, women and, um, in fact, the whole march which took place. Here is a photograph, which is a still from British Pathé, of that march. Spears writes... They were saying that they were Lebanese women, just women who loved their country as much as did their Christian sisters, and they demanded freedom for their country and the release of their leaders. No more were they to be helots of an alien race. They were simply Lebanese demanding the freedom they had been promised. They marched to Spears' office, and I quote, left me with the following message for the Prime Minister Winston Churchill. The letter reads, His Excellency, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, we Lebanese ladies of different creeds strongly protest about the hideous aggression and treachery committed against the officials of our independent government and by the Allies and regard this as an insult to our liberty which you protect and fight for. We ask your immediate intervention in the interests of safeguarding the rights of weak nations, which you have often declared to be their protectors. Signed, the ladies of the Lebanon. Now, Riyad al-Sulah's daughter, uh, Yusuf, recalled how Spears told her, a country that produced such splendid women deserved to be free. And Mary Borden also writes about the ladies of the Lebanon movement. What interests me most is the behavior of the women, she writes. It costs them something to go out into the streets and make a public spectacle of themselves. Nor could they know that the black Senegalese troops bearing down on them wouldn't shoot. I know they achieved one thing, and I believe that although the first, the, the first fine frenzy has dwindled, it will last. 
They achieved national unity. They brought to birth a united spirit, and I do not think it will be easy to snuff out. Now, all this attention surely pressured Spears to act, to save the Lebanese, to be the liberator, and to bring about true independence. This was his moment of glory. And here he is looking uh, very comfortable and rather pleased with himself, um, with his political friends. Um, Now, one can only imagine how this must have played into Spears' vanity and desire to be thought of as the successor to Lawrence of Arabia. Now, the British establishment, however, were not impressed by his behavior. Duff Cooper, the British ambassador to the Committee of French uh, Liberation and de Gaulle, uh, had written to Churchill after a visit from May uh, Spears' wife. She and her husband believe that the main object of their mission is to maintain the rights of the native populations of the Levant against the dominant power, and even to encourage the natives to assert these rights. This is not my view, nor the view, I believe, of His Majesty's government. Now, for me, this is what makes Spears a compelling figure. Now, he, he, uh, he could be, obviously, very vain, um, and he was certainly mixed up in the dirty rivalry between Britain and France, and it affected an arrogant imperial heir, but he showed empathy and compassion for, I quote from him, a small and defenseless people, the Lebanese. For a British general of the time, this was unheard of. On the 13th of November, matters got worse. French troops killed 11 peaceful protesters in Tripoli, in northern Lebanon. Peaceful protesters at the AUB were also fired upon. The crisis also came close to Spears' residence. He writes, In Beirut, the French had kept the nearby Muslim quarter of Basta practically in a state of siege, not allowing the people to leave their houses. This led in many cases to a desperate shortage of food. The British army commander told the French general de Lavalade, that the French must distribute food, otherwise the British army would do so. The French immediately complied. Now, the moment came to a head when Spears and his colleague Casey felt that they had to make an ultimatum to General Coutreau, the commander of the French forces in the Levant. The letter they wrote reads as follows. In the opinion of His Majesty's government... It is essential that the persons mentioned should be released and reinstated in the offices they held before the recent crisis caused by their imprisonment. If the President of the Republic and other Lebanese ministers have not been released at 10 a.m. on the 22nd of November, they will be set free by British troops." It is this letter which defines the date of Lebanese Independence Day. 
And here are the ministers just after their release because of Spears' threat. And uh, I think this uh, photograph is quite instructive because you see Spears on the far left wearing the same white suits as the Lebanese ministers, whereas uh, the French general Catru uh, is looking um, not exactly pleased uh, in his uniform there. And here also is a sketch of the first flag of the Lebanese Republic, which was um, hurriedly created um, in the house um, of um, Saib Salam. Now, he was a leading um, and up-and-coming Sunni politician at the time. Um, and he and Henry uh, Faraon um, met other members of the parliament um, and they sketched this flag. Um, and this flag is today still the uh, flag of Lebanon. It was uh, influenced heavily by the fact that Henry Faraon was um, the consulate to Austria. And the, uh, they thought that they put a um, Lebanese flag as the national symbol in the middle of it and do away with the uh, rather French-looking um, uh, flag that uh, Lebanon had before. Um, and th this, this information has been confirmed to me um, recently, in fact, um, um, because um, Saib Salam was Spears' hunting partner, and these stories were told to me by the recent Prime Minister of Lebanon, uh, Tamam Salam, who is... Um, the son of Saib Salam. So that comes from um, a good source. Um, now that, that day in Martyrs Square in central Beirut, crowds celebrated independence. And that night there was a ball to celebrate independence. In Beirut, Spears spoke of freedom. I am certain of little Lebanon's welcome among among the noble company of those who have dared all for freedom and who, refusing to accept defeat, are witnessing at last the dawn of the day of triumph, a victory won at the cost of such blood, many tears and great sacrifice. Stokes, Spears' deputy, wrote, everyone is hysterically happy because for the first time in the history of Lebanon is united, Christian, Muslim, and Druze. Spears is the absolute hero of the day, an inspiration in the struggle for freedom. But the British government were not so amused. <laughs> Churchill sacked him. Now, um, Foreign Office reports from the time are littered with criticisms and plots to have Spears sacked. Um, government staff hated his unorthodox methods and vanity. A Foreign Office memo titled How to Get Rid of Spears was written only two months after Spears helped Lebanon become independent. Another note states, I'm afraid there is no doubt Spears is a complete misfit. 
To stand up for the rights of a small nation was dangerous to the whole concept of empire, British and French alike. Churchill personally warned Spears, we should discourage the throwing of stones since we have greenhouses of our own, acres and acres of them. However, Churchill did give him the honour of at least appearing in public to have resigned. Churchill wrote to him in 1944, three months before he left Lebanon, I had great difficulty in securing your return to your post. You did not take my advice to try to keep your francophobia within reasonable bounds. I will, however, arrange that when the time comes, you will be given the opportunity of asking to be relieved instead of being abruptly superseded. That is the best I can do. Now, Spears was also an anti-Zionist and argued with Churchill about the establishment of the state of Israel. He called British lies to the Arabs, I quote, immoral and nasty. And despite the fact that his paternal grandparents were in fact Jewish from the Alsace region, he always denies that he had Jewish blood. However, his background made him, him the victim of anti-Semitism throughout his career. In 1947, he received a letter bomb from Zionist extremists, angry at his opposition to a Jewish state in Palestine. His habit of passing on interesting stamps onto his cousins who collected them saved him because a close look at the parcel revealed the ominous wires. Now, his wife, Mary Borden, also had strong humanitarian views about what was happening in Palestine. In 1948, she was involved in setting up the Anglo-Arab Relief Funds to help Palestinian refugees. In a strongly worded letter of appeal, she warned that the troubled story of Palestine is not finished. What we are watching from our comfortable distance is not the end, but the beginning of a tragedy that is going to affect the history of the world. The attitude of both Spears and his wife cannot have done him any good with the British establishment. Churchill wrote to Spears on the 28th of January 1945, it is not correct that you take a position which is hostile to the government by whom you are still, in effect, employed. About Lebanon and the, and the French, uh, Spears wrote, by abandoning the idea that these people were their inferior slaves and by treating them instead as human beings, the Lebanese, the French quite soon established good relation with the Lebanon. Then at last I could say that the mission given to me by Churchill had been fulfilled. Now, you may well wonder, what was a British general doing, deciding what should happen in Lebanon? What right did he have to be there in the first place? What were the British and the French doing competing for power in the Levant at all? Now, these are valid questions. There can be no doubt that the actions of these two countries did much damage. But I think we have to see Spears in the context of his time and consider the best parts of what he wanted, 
that no other people of another country should decide what happens to Lebanon in future apart from the Lebanese themselves. Whether he really meant this or whether he really wanted <coughs> just more British economic influence in the Levant is open for debate. However, the notion, however idealistic, that Lebanon should be self-reliant is an important issue to reconsider now because, as we know, this dream still hasn't really come true. The struggle, the struggle for Lebanese independence cost Spears both his comradeship with de Gaulle and his treasured friendship with Churchill. In the end, as D-Day approached, and due to British fears that France may actually fall to communists after the war, to keep the French on side was a far more important consideration in Churchill's mind than little Lebanon. Spears lost his post. He was useful as a way to curry favor with the Lebanese in the heat of the moment, but once this had been achieved, he was discarded. After his dismissal, he returned to England with his diplomatic career in ruins and then lost his seat as an MP at the next general election. He spent the rest of his life in business, um, actually as chairman of the Institute of Directors, which is just next door um, here, and also managing a gold mine called Ashanti in Ghana. But he never lost his love of Lebanon. He returned to Beirut to a hero's welcome in 1946 after the war and regularly entertained Lebanese friends in London, regaling everyone uh, about his wonderful achievements. When he died in 1974, he was uh, buried in the village of Warfield in, in Berkshire, where he lived, um, and a delegation from the Lebanese government attended the funeral. Um, appropriately enough, there is a cedar of Lebanon in the churchyard. And mercifully, perhaps, he never saw the country which, the site, which was the site of his greatest achievements get torn apart in a vicious civil war. And likewise, he never witnessed the other country he did so much for, Syria, uh, also descend into the uh, hell we are witnessing now. Now, we all love a hero, a maverick, who stands out from the crowd against many odds, struggling for what appears to be right. And in many ways, Spears fits the bill. In other ways, perhaps he doesn't. Was he a megalomaniac self-seeker? Was he really interested in the rights of the Lebanese? Was he just an accidental champion of Lebanese independence? Whether he meant it or not, his actions led to the first crack in the whole edifice of European colonialism. And after Lebanon, many other countries in the region and around the world also won their own struggles for independence. And this, I think, is his vital legacy. Now, he is buried um, next to his wife, Mary Borden, in Warfield and... Uh, in fact, her, her tombstone is the only one that um, 
mentions their very close ties to Lebanon. Um, and his tombstone is in a very sad state. It's in fact falling over um, and really needs some attention. And um, they're actually buried, buried as well with their only son who, who died, in fact, um, um, before he did. And um, hopefully, um, you know, this project might help um, perhaps get him a little more respect and, and get these uh, graves, these tombstones seen to. Now, I think today's Lebanon would have both horrified and delighted Spears. And despite its dysfunctional sectarian system and environmental crisis, it remains a place of creative and relative political freedom, which is unique in the region. And I can tell you, it's a great place to be an artist. And miraculously, the war um, next door in Syria has not spread to Lebanon. Now, however we judge him, this extraordinary character, full of contradictions, who contributed significantly in both world wars to the Allied victories, provided vital support for the man who eventually created modern France, de Gaulle, and then did so much to win independence for Lebanon and Syria, is now largely forgotten by the British. He is only remembered in Beirut by the name of the street which is closest to the house where he lived. Um, now, few people in Lebanon know why the street has this name or what momentous events happened in his house just up the hill near the street. His wife, Mary Borden, wrote at the time, using the nickname B for her husband, what is to come of it all? This, Lebanon, is a backwater now. All the big issues are being decided elsewhere. No one at home is interested in the Arabs. B will get no thanks, whatever happens, for what he has done here. For many reasons, I think that should change. Thank you very much. Absolutely, yeah, sure. Um, you mentioned that Spears also did a lot of work for Syria. Yeah. Did he ever consider that the union of Syria and Lebanon would have been good? Well, I, I th that, yeah, that is, that is a very good question. Um, the, the, 
the lines of independent Lebanon had in fact been drawn in 1920 by uh, General Guru of the, um, um, of the French. Um, and I think he was just responding to the po political reality on the ground at the time. Um, it seemed that uh, the Lebanese political system was already quite well developed in the 23 years or so um, <clears throat> since that uh, decision. And also, um, importantly, some of the leading Lebanese Sunni politicians, Riyad al-Sulah, um, he changed from being a Syrian nationalist to being a Lebanese patriot when he could see that um, if... Uh, you know, the Christian forces were left to their own devices. The Sunni Muslims of the Lebanese, within Lebanese territory, would completely lose out. Um, so he, it's a very complex matter, and it's in fact uh, one of the reasons why Riyad al-Sulah is such a, a controversial um, person for the Sunni community and for the Syrians, and actually was the reason why he was assassinated in um, Jordan in 1951. So um, it, it was to do with internal Lebanese politics. And I think Spears was just responding to the reality at the time. Um, yeah, that's it. So when did the French assume... Lebanon? Uh, to, uh, to, to, as their sort of um, uh, their territory, well it was decided <coughs> in the Sykes-Picot agreements of 1916 um, uh, that you know, a line famously was drawn in the sand um, whereby the British uh, would get everything south of that line and the French would get everything north and, and Lebanon was north of that line. Um, the French had had very strong ties to Lebanon that went back cent uh, centuries, um, uh, both religious ties, setting up um, um, foundations and universities and colleges and vineyards and, um, and also silk factories. There was a lot of business between the French and Lebanon. And today, Lebanon has a very strong, strong French character. You, you, you can see, I'm, I'm sure you noticed when you came out um, and um, um, so yeah the French assumed that Lebanon would be theirs and in fact most Lebanese Christians wanted the French in fact to be their sort of colonial overlords and in fact many Lebanese Christians still want the French to be um, their colonial overlords and, and amazingly wish they weren't independent um, I've heard those voices expressed um so yeah no there are very strong ties between france and and um and lebanon but but not many people know that it was in fact the british or uh, a very unusual british individual who actually won independence for lebanon